Good morning. We want to welcome you once again to our time together, worshiping the one true God. Let's pause for a moment and think about his grace, the grace he shows to us. Shows to you, shows to me, shows to each one of us. Grace given by a perfect God who chooses to be merciful and who chooses to be generous with his favor for us. Let me encourage you as we start singing together and worshiping through the service that we actually give ourselves over to that spirit of love and figure out ways that we can express that spirit of love as a result of the grace we've been given in humility and gratefulness. Let's sing before the throne of God. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. Tongue can bid me then sleep. Oh, tongue can bid me then sleep. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, a word I look and see him there who made an soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me behold him there the prison lamb with perfect spot Righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior. Hello, Grace family. It's hard to believe that this is the last weekend in June, and yet we're continuing to face into so many things in our world disease and dissension and the politicalization of everything. And we're just acutely aware of the brokenness that surrounds us. And yet we're called to live out of hope, 
to be beacons of hope. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is to remind ourselves of who we are in light of who God is. And Psalm 103 provides us this beautiful depiction of God and our union with him and just reminds us of his greatness and our smallness. And I encourage you to maybe take some time today to read through Psalm 103 and to meditate on it. But I want to share with you some truths that are found in that passage. Um, We serve a God who is righteous and holy, and yet he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He is a forgiving God. And he says that he redeems our lives out of the pit. And I think there are so many that are experiencing what feels like the pit right now. And God is one who wants to restore and redeem us out of the pit. And Psalm 103 says that he's a God who provides justice for all who are oppressed, and he's compassionate and he's gracious with us. Yet he is a God who rules over all things, and he's sovereign and in control, and his kingdom is forever. But interestingly, the passage also goes on to say that we are small. We're mortal beings. We're like grass and flowers that fade and die and blow away. We're here and then gone. And yet he is one who is everlasting. His love is forever and it's as high and as infinite as the heavens. And it says that he crowns us with that love and compassion. So our invitation as we consider who God is, is to adore him, to praise him, to humble ourselves before him and see him in all his glory. And so we're going to just take some time to pray now and adore our creator and our God. Father, we ask that you would just give us a really clear picture of who you are that you would remind us of your glory and your majesty and your greatness, that you would allow us to see your work in this world as one who redeems us from the pit, as one who loves us and forgives us, one who clothes us with compassion and your love that is everlasting. Father, help us to see you clearly, who you are. And then God, we also pray that you would allow us to see ourselves as who we are, that we're mortal, that we're small, that we're in desperate need of you. Help us to live out of that dependence. Humble our hearts, God, before you uh, and make us um, just acutely aware that you are a great God and we need you. We pray this in your name. Amen.
hands and feet that were nailed to the tree. Your grace flows down and covers me. It covers me. It covers me. passage today is Philippians 2, 1 through 11, which is actually one of my favorite passages. And just, we're going to be talking about this call to humility with one another. So here's Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider one another better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we continue in our series on the one another's of Scripture, and we look at this very famous passage in Philippians 2. And the one another is found in verse 3, where Paul says, In humility consider one another above yourselves. So Paul is inviting us in this passage into this relational culture where we put others ahead of ourselves, where we consider one another's needs, not just our own needs. And he's calling us into a culture that should have us stand out from the rest of the world, where people generally look out for their own interests. And so to begin, I think it's helpful just to acknowledge that Paul is calling us into a certain mindset that then plays out in certain kinds of actions and behaviors. And the actions and behaviors I think you see in verse 4 when he talks about not looking to your own interests, uh, but to the interests of others. 
that there'd be tangible actions, right, that Paul's inviting us into. Listen to others when you would maybe like to be listened to yourself. Serve when you would like to be served. Love when you'd like to be loved. And really, he's really getting at what Jesus talks about when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? We all love ourselves naturally in the sense of we all naturally look out for our own interests. And Paul's inviting us to think, take that same natural bent to consider your own interests and just apply that to one another in the church community. So there's lots of actions that would come from that. But today, what I want to focus on is the mindset that grounds those actions. There's a certain way of thinking, a certain way of of experiencing life that would usher forth in that kind of action. And I've I've studied this passage. I've preached on this passage many times. I have never seen, like I have seen this time, how much the mind and our mindset, our perspective is a part of this passage. Let me just show you what I mean. Verse 2, Paul talks about being like-minded. Verse 2, he talks about being of one mind. The word humility in verse 3, the Greek literally means lowliness of mind. And then he says in humility, consider others. There's a way you're supposed to think and consider them. Verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ who himself did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. All that to say, this is about how we think, how we consider, what our perspective is, what our worldview is, and actions usher forth from the foundation of that mindset, of that worldview. So today I want to really focus in on this mindset that Paul's inviting us into in the church community. And it's right there in verse 3. That's where we're going to focus ourselves in verse 3. And first he puts it negatively, and then he puts it positively. So let's look at this mindset together. First, negatively, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Those two words, I know those words well. I know them intimately in my own life. But at the heart of these words is this pride that I think either seeks to prove ourselves all the time or to protect ourselves. That's how I would summarize these words. There's this part of us that wants to prove ourselves, right? That wants to make a name for ourselves, that wants to have a reputation, that wants to be noticed, that wants to be seen as significant in the world. And there's an ego that's at the center of so much of what we do. But there's also this other side of pride that simply wants to protect ourselves, that wants to, wants to secure our own comforts, our own uh, interests, our own safety, at, oftentimes at the expense of others. And so this, this prideful, self-centered perspective, whether proving ourselves or trying to protect ourselves, it is so natural to us. We, do not, we don't have to be taught it. It comes so naturally to us. And I was thinking about this this week. I mean, just as a function of being creatures, when we are born, from the day we're born, every day of our lives, we go with ourselves everywhere we go, right? We are always, by definition, at the center of every single experience that we encounter. And all these supporting actors and actresses are around us, but we are always at the center of our own story. And so it is so natural to have this self-centered focus. And then you add sin onto that, and it it becomes even, even more so. And I will just say, I have become so much more deeply aware in the last five years of my life of how deeply this mindset is ingrained in my own life. Those words, 
selfish ambition, vain conceit. I, in, in fresh ways, am seeing how ingrained those postures are in my own heart, how much those postures shape everything I do, even behaviors that maybe look decent on the outside, how they can be motivated by this fundamental self-centeredness. And so I, I will just confess, and I can guarantee you of all the passages we'll look at this summer, this is the one that will be hardest for me personally. So pride is this mindset. And I think Paul is bringing it up because pride is so destructive to relationships. I think at, at the core of almost every relational strife and, and rupture is pride. Pride is the thing that takes down relationships. Pride is the thing that takes down entire communities. Usually a relationship goes south because one or both of the parties is prideful. They're, they're, they're wanting to prove themselves or they're wanting to protect themselves at all costs. I don't think that disagreements in and of themselves are actually that dangerous to, to communities or to relationships. People can disagree about a lot of things. Churches can have lots of differences of opinion and be totally fine. And I say that because right now we're in a situation where there's so much going on in the world where there's so many you know, differing opinions on so many things. And I want to say that that is fine. Communities can weather all sorts of differences of opinion. It is pride that takes down communities. When people hold certain things in a certain posture and hold themselves in conversations in a certain way. I mean, those of you who've been part of church splits, pride is so often at the very core of it. And so Paul's saying this is, this is such a danger to community. It's a mindset and we need to be freed from that mindset. So negatively, Paul says, don't do anything in your lives from that mindset. And now let's turn positively. What does he have to say? And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Verse three, the second half. Rather, I love this, in humility, consider others above yourselves. It is a mindset. Consider others as better than yourselves. Now we know in reality that isn't necessarily true, right? I mean, statistically, we're average, probably. There's people that are better than us. There's people that are worse than us. We will encounter people who we are better than in, in a host of ways. We might be wiser than them or more competent, more competent than them or, or more moral than them even. But Paul's inviting us into a certain kind of mindset, a way of thinking about the world. And in a word, what that mindset is, is this beautiful word right in the middle of our verse, the word humility. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. And I've been thinking a lot about humility this last year. In fact, this is the spiritual quality I have thought about more than any other. I feel like I'm taking a dive into humility. Not that I'm becoming more humble, but I'm exploring it and thinking about it a lot. And it's been a really rich experience for me. So I want to I spend the rest of our time talking about humility. Um, most of us have probably heard the phrase, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. And I think that's actually a really great place to start with what true humility is in terms of how I think Paul would define it. But just to give you an illustration, um, we all have the experience of doing something that we really love to do. And I want you to picture what's something that you just love to do. It might be a hobby, it might be a, a sport, a favorite activity but it's something that you love so much that you are so 
fully engrossed in the activity that you completely forget about yourself in the experience. You're utterly unoccupied with yourself because you're so preoccupied with this great thing that you're doing. I think that is actually a taste of what genuine humility is like. Uh, I've been reading a book and the author describes humility this way. He says, humility is the displacement of the self by the enthronement of God. And I love that. It's, it's when the preoccupation with ourselves, whether trying to prove ourselves or trying to protect ourselves, where that whole preoccupation is removed from the center of our lives and God is put at the center. And in a very basic way, we begin to realize I'm really not that big of a deal. And my, my needs, my desires really aren't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. And so there's a couple of things about humility that I've been learning. And I want to I, I share a couple of those with you. Um, one is, and this has probably been the funnest one, is what, an, what a joyful and truly refreshing experience humility is for the soul. What a refreshing and joyful experience humility is for our hearts. And when you think about pride, pride is crushing to the human soul. Now, I, I really want us to, to hear this this morning. Like, pride is such a heavy way to live life always needing to prove ourselves, always needing recognition, always needing to protect ourselves, always being easily offended when we don't, you know, we're not treated the way we think we should be being, feeling entitled, holding grudges. It is a very heavy way to live. And humility is such a free and light and refreshing way to live. Not needing recognition all the time, not needing to prove ourselves, either to others or to ourselves, um, not being easily offended, not needing to conform to people's expectations to feel accepted. It is such a freeing way to live. And I've been thinking about Jesus' famous invitation to rest in Matthew's gospel and how humility is right at the center of it. Let me read you this invitation that you've heard many times before, but hear it now in light of humility. Jesus says this, this is Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me that I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I love that invitation. He's, he's talking about a life that is weary and burdened. And the kind of pride that Jesus talk, this is talking about in this passage is is the worst kind of pride, it's spiritual pride. It's that pride that says, I can earn my keep with God, that maybe I can obey his commandments and perform morally well enough to be accepted by him. And he says, that is such a heavy way to live your life. Come to me and learn from me. And he says, here's what I want you to learn from me, that I am humble. You will experience refreshment with me because I'm a humble person, but you will begin to learn humility yourself, and it is such a lighter and easier way to live life. And you'll find rest for your soul when you learn the kind of humility that I live with. It's this wonderful invitation. So all that to say, humility is a very freeing way to live. And, and the other thing I've been learning is, I think, what actually leads to genuine humility in life? Like what actually makes a person genuinely humble in the way that Paul is inviting us to be humble in this passage? And here's what I'm learning about that. 
I do not think that simply a deeper awareness of our sin is what leads to true humility, uh, which might sound surprising. I think if we grew up in the church, most of us, that's what we've heard, right? The way you find humility is you really, you consider your sin, you sit in that, and that's what leads to humility. And we absolutely need to be in touch with our sin. That's a really important aspect. But I do not think awareness of sin alone leads to the kind of humility that Paul's talking about. The reason I don't think that, one is Paul puts Jesus forth as the ultimate example of humility in this passage, and Jesus was the sinless one. So clearly, awareness of sin uh, alone, at least, is not necessarily what leads to genuine humility. And the other thing is, I would just say it's simply not true. Meaning, I know lots of people who have deep awareness of their sin, and we all might experience that simply being aware of your sin does not actually necessarily, in and of itself, lead to genuine humility. We can be aware of our sin, but still be very preoccupied people with ourselves, actually very self-absorbed people. We can have an awareness of sin that doesn't lead to a humility where we're actually putting other people's needs ahead of our our own. So awareness of sin alone isn't what leads to humility. So if that's the case, what does lead to genuine humility? And what I would offer is this. It is not just an awareness of sin, but it is a deep awareness of God's grace. That that is what leads to the kind of humility Paul is inviting us into in this passage. It is it may be an experience of sin, but that is met with an even deeper experience of the grace of God. It is an awareness that I have had grace showered on my life in ways that I do not deserve and I could never repay that leaves me grateful and humbled. I am humbled by the grace of God. And what strikes me about this passage on humility is that it is entirely surrounded by grace. Look at how the passage begins. Verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, you've been united with Christ, Paul's saying, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion. He is reminding us of the grace of God on our lives. You've received God's tenderness and compassion. You're united with Christ. You have His Spirit living within you. You have received so much grace. And then the passage ends with grace by going and talking about what Jesus has done for us. Look at verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is being offered here, obviously, as as the great example of humility that we're to follow. But even more than that, we're being reminded of the extravagant grace of God that we have received through Jesus Christ. Paul's reminding his hearers, the Lord of the universe, the one who for all eternity was with the Father in heaven, the one who enjoyed all the privileges of being part of the Godhead. In that place, he considered you, little old you. He looked not only to his own interests, but he looked to your interests, and he did something radical and extravagant. He emptied himself. He emptied himself of all the divine privileges, and he became a human being. 
And then as a human being, he humbled himself further in serving you and loving you and offering his life for you on the cross. The, the, the most important being in the universe considered you and did something radically extravagant. You have received so much grace. And that grace is there to leave you grateful and utterly humbled. Like, why me? Oh my goodness. I am one who has received grace. That is what defines my life more than anything else. I am one who has received grace. And no one understood grace better than Paul himself who wrote this. I want to read another famous passage in 1 Timothy 1 where Paul describes his own life. Here's what he says. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. As you look at this passage, a couple things to note. One, clearly Paul is very aware of his sin, right? He twice calls himself the worst of sinners. But as you step back and consider the big picture of this passage, you realize it's actually not primarily about Paul's sin. In fact, it's, it's really not about Paul at all. The passage is about Jesus, right? It's about his mercy and his unlimited patience. And Paul's life exists to be exhibit A of the mercy and patience of Jesus. And so for Paul, he had this radical worldview shift where he began to realize, oh my goodness, my life is really not about me. My life is about Jesus. My life exists to be an exhibit of Jesus' grace and unlimited patience. And I think that is when true humility begins to set into our lives, really begins to sink in when we can begin to see our lives, however many years we've lived, and actually realize, oh my goodness, the story of my life is really not about me in the end. It's not about what I can prove, what I can accomplish, what I can secure for myself, the name I can make for myself. That's actually not the story of my life. My life exists to provide God with an opportunity to display His grace his patience, his generosity. And my life is a little plot point in the, in the story of God's lavish grace in this world. I am a supporting actor. I'm a supporting actress, a bit part in this great story of God's grace. That, I think, is the kind of humility that Paul's inviting us into. So, to bring this to a close... And to bring this back into the community context in which Paul's writing it, chapter 2 of Philippians, he's saying, you've all experienced this same grace together. You are all swimming in this sea of God's grace. Now, in light of that, how do you want to treat one another? So, let go of all these vain, self-centered pursuits and in humility. Consider one another. Love one another. Let the grace of God move you to a gratitude that moves you to a humility, that moves you to loving one another well. 
So that's the question I would leave you with this morning is this. How can I let God's grace in my life move me to a humility that shapes the way I treat others? Shapes the way I listen to them, the way I serve them, the way I give to them, the way I love them. How can God's grace move me towards love? When we seriously consider what it means to live lives of humility, we are immediately confronted with the realization of the complexity and elusiveness of this task. And then, of course, the prospect of actually embodying faithful expressions of humility, like, for instance, putting the interests of others in front of our own, well, we quickly come to understand that this is really hard. Humility and selflessness doesn't come very naturally to most of us, and it's absolutely countercultural. So where do we start? How do we change? I suppose you can try to will yourself into a more humble and deferential frame of mind, but the kind of change we really need is not simply some superficial, moralistic, behavioral change. What we need is a perspective and behavior that flows from a deep internal change. The kind of change that is spiritually wrought, that is, change that is produced by the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, let's seek Him in prayer, asking Him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So will you pray with me? Well, Father, we come to you now asking for your help. Lord, we know all too well our tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, to put our own personal interests in front of the interests of others. We know too well the spirit of selfishness that can reside so deeply within us our tendency to oftentimes hold at a distance the needs of others or turn a blind eye to them, our hesitancy to take the initiative to move towards others in compassion and care. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us, Lord, change our hearts, change our minds. Give us the mind of Christ who humbled himself in the most profound expression of humility ever exhibited, the creator of all who became a servant to all, sacrificing his life that we might have and experience true life. Lord, just in light of what's currently going on, all around us, this global crisis that we are experiencing together, the national conversation that is going on. How can we be people who navigate all this with a posture of humility, with gentleness and patience? Lord, who are the people that you've placed in our lives? People that we cross paths with. People that we can love and serve and display a heart of humble service towards. 
Bring those people to mind right now, Lord. And Father, bring to mind our neighbors. What needs can we attend to there? What life-giving conversations can we engage in with those people that live so close to us? And as we consider even those who we live with in our homes, people that we may have the tendency to take for granted or disregard or fail to go the extra mile for, would you bring to mind their needs to us right now? Give us a vision for the ways that we can put their interests ahead of our own ways that we can love them. And Lord, we thank you for your church, your people. But this is such a difficult time to not be able to be together like we're used to. And, and we know that so many in our community are struggling in just various ways. Lord, we know a virus cannot stand in your way, nor should it stand in our way to love and serve others. Bring to our minds right now people in our own church family. Give us an opportunity uh, or help us to see the opportunities that we have before us to, to reach out uh, ways that we might be able to sacrifice for one another, ways that we can serve one another. And Lord, may we be people of prayer, that our prayers would reach beyond our own cares and interests, but that we might be spiritual advocates for one another as a church family. Help us, Lord. We need you. And thank you for being the kind of God who provides for our needs in lavish and beautiful ways. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to me. How great thou art, how great thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how
Well, we've hoped you found this encouraging, and we invite you to engage the discussion questions that we've provided for you here. Let us leave you with this benediction. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Amen. Amen.